This is the Seven Figure Agency Podcast. Discover the strategies and techniques to grow a highly successful and profitable digital marketing agency with your host, Josh Nelson. Today, I'm super excited. You have a major treat. Uh, you're going to hear from Tim Shermack from Platform Marketing. He runs a digital marketing agency that specializes in the, in the real estate space, um, has grown to multiple seven figures. Uh, and so I'm always excited to get you know high growth, really smart guys like Tim on. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Josh, it's good to be here. I'm excited. So I guess before we dive in, kind of for the, for the audience, just let them know kind of what your background is. And we'll actually start with what, what platform marketing is and kind of where it sits today. Like how many clients approximately, how much revenue, that, that type of fun stuff. Yep. So we are a digital marketing agency that just specializes in working with realtors. Um, so we're all in on like residential realtors and most marketing programs in our space are really built for like big teams. So mm -hmm. like most of our competition, what we say, even in our like sales calls and whatnot, it's kind of part of our sales messaging is that our competition is like, they're not really marketing agencies. They're software companies pretending to be marketing programs because what they're really selling you is like a website template and a CRM. And then everyone has the same website template, right? So they'll sell the same website to, you know, 50 realtors in the same city. The only thing that changes is your picture and your logo or whatever. Uh, to me, that's not really marketing, right? That's just you selling a website to someone. So what we do is actual creative marketing where we're coming up with ad ideas. Uh, primarily it's all around uh, social media right now. So like, I mean, 90% of the ads that we do are on uh, Facebook, Instagram, that ecosystem. And a question we get asked a lot is like, why are you all in on Facebook? That's the most boring old school boomer social media, right? It's like, yeah, totally. Like what's more popular right now, of course, is like TikTok and Twitter and, you know, et cetera. But if you're a realtor, would you, all things being equal, would you rather have a lead comes in who's 52 years old and kind of like a prototypical Facebook user? Or would you rather have someone who's young and cool and 23 years old? It's like, well, many industries would rather have the young people but a realtor would way rather have someone in their 40s or 50s or 60s because they have money and they live in more expensive homes, right? right. So we're we're all in on uh, we're all in on Facebook as a company. We work with one realtor per market. We're really strict on that um, so that we can write really creative ads for our clients and help them stand out in their uh, communities. Right now, we have I think 220 something clients, um, and our monthly revenue is like right around 300, uh, 300,000 a month. Um, we're making a couple tweaks to our cost structure, um, like literally in the next 90 days, that'll probably add $30,000 a month to our revenue. So like within the next 90 days, if we keep growing at the rate we are on our monthly recurring, probably will be somewhere between 320, 330 to 350. And so we're we're hoping that, you know, as, as we record this, what it's like June of 2023, our goal for next year is to exceed $4 million in, um, in annual. annual revenue. Yeah. So good. So working with realtors, one per market, over 300,000 in a month recurring and growing extremely quickly. Guys, give me one in the comments. If you're excited to unpack, we're going to be talking about, you know, how he started in the niche, how he lands clients, how he's delivering at volume. Um, and we'll be able to answer any questions that you guys have along the way. Um, so what I'd love to hear now, kind of like we know where you're at and kind of like the scope of the operation. I really want to get into some of the higher level stuff. But if we kind of went back to when you started Platform, um, kind of where were you? Why did you decide to go after the real estate niche? Let's talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I started it right out of college. Uh, I was like 20, 21 or 22 years old. Can't remember. Um, I was majoring in economics and finance in college. And I got to basically my senior year and just realized like, holy crap, I don't want to be an investment banker. Like I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And so what I kind of just learned about myself is I like marketing. Like this is what I really enjoy. And so I dropped out of college my basically senior year, which was just pissed off my parents to no end because I was fortunate enough to where they were, you know, they were paying for my my college. And so to drop out your senior year, they're like, they're like, what the hell are you doing? Like, just finish. You have one more year. And I kind of, you know, I guess this is evidence of my salesmanship or persuasion. It probably was the reason I was meant to go into marketing is I was like, well, that same logic can be inverted if I only have one year left, I can always go back and I only have one year left. Right. So like, that doesn't mean I should uh, finish now if I know what I want to do. And so uh, dropped out and I had no plan to go into real estate marketing. Obviously I was a young college kid. It's not like I had experience selling real estate. Um, but what happened was I went, uh, I went door to door to small businesses in my uh, hometown. It was a small, small town in central Minnesota. Um, right, right in the middle of the state. And I literally just door knocked, like I would walk in and I would ask, um, you know, ask the front desk person, like, hi, can I speak to the owner or the manager? And I would usually be carrying like a briefcase and there was nothing in it. But I learned like, if I carry a briefcase, they'll think it's important. Like I'm an important person and you should at least, you know, uh, you should at least hear me out. And so I would always carry this briefcase to my meetings that I bought at Office Max, I think for like $30. And there was literally nothing in it. Like if I would have opened it up, there would have been nothing in it. Um, but I was, yeah, like 20, I think I would have been 22 years old. Um, and I just, I walked into car dealerships. I walked into financial advisors, offices, uh, gyms, staffing service, like natural health stores, spa, massages, places, uh, um, even a gas station convenience store. Um, I mean, like any type of small business you can imagine in my community back in uh, back in Minnesota, in the small town, I walked in, I was basically like, I have some marketing ideas. I love to meet with the owner and just share my marketing ideas with him. And, you know, half of them gave me a meeting, half of them didn't. Uh, there was a car dealership who actually yelled at me once because I went back like three times and they're like, get out of here. You know, I don't want to talk to you again. Um, but it was like, you know, learning how to deal with like rejection, right? Like that at a young age, I think was really important because basically nothing, nothing scared me, you know? And so uh, I did this for, I don't know if it was half a year, full year, like it was over a decade ago. So it's kind of hard to remember exactly what the timeline was, but um, they all said no, you know, some of them strung me out on meetings where I'd get to a second or even a third meeting. I remember this uh, financial advisor invited me back for multiple meetings. And I typed out like a 10 page marketing plan for them. If here's what I want to do for you. And, uh, they eventually said, said, no, um, you know, we're not looking to move forward, you know, with you at this time. And I was like, starting to get really frustrated. Right. Cause I, I thought I was maybe way smarter than I was. I dropped out of school and it's like, you know, if you drop out of school because you're launching a billion dollar company, like Mark Zuckerberg or something, everyone thinks you're a genius, but when you drop out of school and you're like, I'm going to start my own business and then no one hires you, you kind of look like an idiot. Right. So my friends and family are kind of like, wow, we always thought Tim was the really smart one. Cause I was like, you know, uh, got straight A's in high school and gave like the, you know, valedictorian type 
speech at my high school and my parents were all like, oh, he's going to go off to law school and be some high powered lawyer or whatever. And those are kind of the expectations that were set for me when I was young is like, Tim's going to be successful. And then to see him drop out and then just this business thing isn't working out. Oh man, he's really making terrible decisions. Right. And I got introduced to this realtor um, after all these like string of, you know, failures and trying to get other small businesses to hire me. Um, I had a couple that had said yes, but it was like, they were paying me like $600 a month. Right. So it wasn't like I was even making enough to pay my bills. I was still living at home at this time with my mom. Right. And so like, yeah, there was no money coming in. Um, and, uh, uh, there, there, there was a realtor I got introduced to and she agreed to meet with me. And she's like, well, if you can help me grow my business, I'll definitely hire you, but I have no business right now. So the reason I'm willing to hire you is like, I have nothing to lose because I have no business coming in. I can't afford to pay you anything right now. So like, if my business grows, I'll pay you out of the profits. And I was in a situation, like I would obviously never say yes to a deal like that now, but at the time I was like, well, I have nothing to lose. So yeah, let's do this. And then I, you know, asked her, what's your advertising budget? Like how much money do I have to work with every month? And she's like, no, I don't think you understand. I have no money. Like, so if you're going to do this, you'll have to front the ad spend and everything. Um, like I have no money. And she wasn't joking. Like I, you know, filmed a couple videos with her to put on social media. One of the first houses she promoted was her own house because like she was behind on her payments and didn't want to lose it to the bank. Mm. So she was having to sell her own house like that's how bad this agent's business was 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 going. But the the deal that we eventually agreed on was I would take 25% of all of her business in exchange for be, being her full-time marketer basically. And it didn't matter if I if a deal came in that I got or she got, I said I want 25% of everything because if I'm paying for the ad spend and fronting all this you know, like I'm not going to differentiate between if a lead came from one of the ads I did versus, you know, like I just want 25% of everything. And she agreed because again, it was like, well, right now that's 25% of zero. Right. So she, she, she agreed because she was as desperate as I was. So it was kind of this interesting business partnership where both, both parties had absolutely nothing to lose. And uh, within about a year, um, you know, year, year and a half of that, something like that. I mean, like I had added six figures to her business where her income went from essentially zero to hundred thousand, 150,000, eventually 200,000. And so here I am at this like young age, college age. And, you know, she, for example, hits 200,000 in GCI, a gross commission income. That's the phrase that realtors use. Um, and like, I have a quarter of that. So like, if she makes 200, I'm making $50,000 a year. And as a, young kid that still is literally living at home at this time. I'm like, I'm wealthier than Kings, right? Like I'm making $50,000, you know, a year. This is fantastic. Um, and then I get reported to the state board because, uh, someone finds out that that's our arrangement. And I didn't know this. I'm, you know, like 22 years old, but if you're not licensed as a real estate agent, you can't technically take a percentage of commission from, deals and it happened to be that her broker was actually the president of the minnesota board of realtors for that year so he didn't he didn't like lay down the hammer with any fines or anything he just kind of said hey you need to find a different way of doing this because this isn't kosher um and so what we eventually did is i would just send her invoices like every month that just happened to equal uh 25 of her gci every month so some months i would send her different hours and invoices and that's kind of how we creatively got around it but eventually even that they're like hey you can't be doing that anymore you either have to get licensed or you need to figure out some sort of 
consulting fee that you're going to charge. And so that kind of became the genesis of what became platform is I got a couple referrals from her, did really great work for those realtors, grew their businesses a bunch. Um, and then they referred people to me. And so eventually it's like, I had 10 clients that are, you know, what I stumbled on charging was $1,500 a month. Cause that just sounded like a nice round number to me. And so, um, they kept referring. Eventually I had to hire my first employee and, you know, there was no business plan. It's not like I wrote all this down ahead of time and said, here's what I want to accomplish in the next three years. And, you know, it just kind of all organically happened from doing good work and creating marketing campaigns that brought in business. And then you get referrals from that and people, you know, like that's the way a marketing agency should be. You almost, when like, especially when you're starting out, you shouldn't have to advertise yourself or promote yourself because like you should be getting clients such obvious results that they like want to refer business to you because like you're clearly doing such a, you know, such a good job. And we got our first, I don't know, 10 or 20 clients that way before we ever spent money on advertising. Um, and you know, now it's like 10 years later and we have hundreds of clients, um, and a, you know, big, big team. And, you know, I'm not going to say the business runs itself. I'm still involved, but like we have a whole management team in place that, handles probably 99% of the day-to-day -day operation stuff. So I can kind of just focus on really big picture CEO vision, long-term strategy, because I'm not necessarily directly managing accounts anymore or doing any of the fulfillment. Like I, I get to come up with just the big picture ideas, you know, like if I wanted to, I could take a two month vacation and have complete confidence that when I came back after eight weeks, we probably would have grown the business because we have a full-time salesperson in place and we have a CMO even, um, you know, on the team now that I think is actually smarter at marketing than I am. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really grown into truly being a, a business, um, where, you know, at a, at a, at a young age, I'm not sure who, who, like who uh, recommended it to me, but, um, you know, I read the book, the E-Myth, you know, by Michael Gerber and like yep. so many small business owners, have read that book and said like that book fundamentally changed their their mindset around owning a business you know but that's where we get this phrase own a you know own a business not a job right and work work on your business not in your business and luckily i stumbled upon that book when i was like you know 22 23 years old so i didn't have to learn the hard way kind of i started the business building even at that young age with the intention of like, I don't want to be tied to this business where if and when it ever becomes really, really successful and is making a million dollars a year. Cause at that age, if I, if, if like you would have told me, Hey, you'll one day eclipse $90,000 a month and thus be a seven figure year company. I would have been like, that's never going to happen. We'll probably never get more than 30,000 a month, but that would be amazing if we ever did get 30,000 a month because I thought that was just major dollars. And obviously all these years later, we're at like $300,000 a month. And I think we're going to keep growing substantially beyond that. But uh, early on, I guess I had the philosophy of like, I don't want to make this business dependent on me. Like, I don't want to just have a high paying job, right? Like I truly want this business to exist independent of me so that, you know, if I want to take a two month vacation or something or work on other interesting projects that are just intellectually fulfilling to me, that I can do that. So one one major way, actually, the platform marketing is very different than most agencies is I don't own 100 percent of it. 
like we've brought in partners and they all work at the company. So it's not like we have outside investors, but um, our senior leadership team all owns equity in, uh, in the company. So um, I own uh, 55% of the company. My wife is actually one of our senior partners and she independently owns 12 and a half percent. And you might think, oh, that's weird. Why don't you and your wife just own the equity together? But like she was born uh, into a really poor family. Her mom was an immigrant from Panama. And so she grew up actually like homeless for a while in, in high school. And they never had any, you know, any money at all. Like she grew up without hot water in her house. So I hadn't taken like hot showers and things like that. And so when we built this business together, my wife, my wife was there from the beginning helping build it. And she's like, you know, just for my personal pride. Like I would like to know that I own some equity in my name so that I can just like have this sense of accomplishment that, you know, like I helped build this business. And she did like, it's not one of those situations where the, you know, the, the wife just manages your Facebook page or pays bills. And then you say that she's a business partner or whatever. Like, no, my, my wife is probably like arguably the most important employee we have. She's like our CFO and runs our entire fulfillment team. So she has like I think almost 20 people that report directly to her. Um, if she was an outside employee, we've, we've joked about this, but we're also like dead serious. Like if my wife, Bella were any other employee that wasn't married to me and she came to me tomorrow and said, I need you to double my salary or else I'm leaving. Like we would have a very serious conversation about maybe doubling her salary. Cause like we, that's how instrumental she is to the business. Like it's not, not one of those situations where, oh yeah, he just added his wife to the payroll and they pay her a six figure salary. You know, it's like, no, she's absolutely an important part of making the company work. Um, I, I bring all that up to say that she owns, you know, 12 and a half percent. Our GM of the company owns 12 and a half percent. We have a CMO, I think right now the CMO owns nine, 9% of the company. Um, I can't, I can't remember what the exact cap table looks like other than I know I own 55%. <laughs> and so, uh, because of that, it's not like if we have a month where we, you know, net a hundred thousand dollars, like I'm not personally keeping a hundred thousand dollars, you know, of that hundred thousand, I might keep 55,000, but I would rather build a business where the return on my time investment, if I'm only working in the business, let's say truly 10 hours a week, I'd rather make, you know, uh, 55% of our net income for working 10 hours a week, then make a hundred percent of it working 50 or 60 hours a week. Cause that frees up my time to do other things. And sometimes those other things are, I just want to go to the beach and read a book for the day. Right. And a lot of business owners are tied to their business in a way that they can't do that. And so I'm grateful. I read books like the four hour work week or the e-myth by Michael Gerber at a young age, because I built the business and had this mentality early on that I, I want to bring in really smart, driven business partners to partner with. And I say partners because they legally own equity in the company, right? It's not just like I'm paying them generous, uh, profit bonuses, you know, like they own equity in the, um, in, in the business. So they're incentivized to make decisions that, um, that grow the company. Um, and I, I, I tested this a couple of years ago. I actually took like a sabbatical to Alaska, right? Just disappeared actually for, I think it was eight, eight weeks. I drove up to Alaska, um, like driving from Montana all the way through like the Yukon. And it was like a six day drive of like eight hours a day of driving. Um, 
and rented an Airbnb in Alaska, stayed there for almost six weeks just to decompress. I put my phone on airplane mode. So I literally did not talk to anyone for those six weeks. I wasn't on Facebook, wasn't checking Slack email or anything. I was like off the grid for six weeks, just read a ton of books. I brought a ton of books with me and just like binged on all these books that I didn't have time to, you know, read before. Cause I was kind of a test. I wanted to test, can this company actually run without me? And like, what's going to happen if I'm gone for eight weeks? Um, and then my wife and I took uh, like a two week Disney cruise at the end of this. So that made that six week sabbatical actually eight weeks because we did um, a Panama Canal cruise that started in California and looped all the way around and came up back. So it was like a two week cruise. And so the total time I was gone was over eight, eight weeks. And I came back and we had actually grown the company by almost 10% um, on a monthly recurring revenue basis. So I, I can't remember what, what the exact number was, but our monthly recurring had increased by 10% while I was gone for eight weeks. It's like, well, that's pretty cool. Cause that, yeah. you know, on an annualized basis, a 10% monthly increase is pretty huge. And so I just realized like, I was hoping that it would stay the same or at least not shrink. Not, not, not go down while you're away. Right. Yeah. And so that kind of got me hooked of realizing, cause this was actually before we had brought in these other partners and I realized like, wow, we've really built this to the point that this business does actually operate without me. Um, and so I, I, I've just gone all in on that, um, on that philosophy. I don't think it's necessarily the right decision for everyone. There are some people who absolutely are going to be happier and it's the right decision for them to own hundred percent of their agency or whatever. But for me, um, I have a lot of other projects I want to be working on that I don't want to just be head down in, in, in our agency for 60 or 70 hours a week. Uh, you know, we had just launched a mortgage company actually, um, in the last, in the last month. And the goal is to build that mortgage company into being a hundred million dollar plus company that'll actually be end up being far larger than platform, our marketing agency. And we have a CEO running that mortgage company and already employees on the payroll. And I'm just kind of like the main investor. I don't work day to day in that, but I advise all the marketing, right? So I wouldn't be able to do that and launch this mortgage company if I was working 70 hours a week in the, in the agency. And so, uh, yeah, there's just all sorts of other, other things I want to be working on. I want to always have a little bit of time in my schedule, um, to say yes to interesting opportunities, you know, that, uh, so that's why we've set it up that way. So it's a lot different than most agencies, but it seems to, um, seems to be working. Our, our churn for most of the last couple of years was only one or 2% a month, even at hundreds of clients. It was like, I mean, we had months where we didn't, we had 200 plus clients and didn't lose anybody. So if we got four random referrals in a month and didn't lose anyone, we have like, you know, net, net negative churn. Um, in the last couple months, our churn has been higher because, you know, we work with realtors and real estate transaction volume across the country at the time of this recording is down about 30% year over year. You know, the fed, the fed raising rates has absolutely, you know, put a break on the real estate market over the last year. And that's exactly what Powell wants to do. I mean, Powell has said like one of our like explicit goals is we want to cool off the real estate market because that's driving so much of the inflation. And so like it's it's working <laughs> like the transaction volume is down 30 percent, which is a different way of saying if your town had 100 real estate transactions last year this year it's only going to have 70. and so the pie has shrunk by 30 percent in terms of the number of deals that are out there for realtors and so it's a tough market right now 
for real estate agents. I actually just did the math on this um, a couple of days ago. I was doing a little prep before this interview so I could actually have specific numbers to share with you. And I was kind of feeling depressed the last couple of weeks. I'm like, man, I feel like our churn is just really elevated over the last couple of months. And, and then I actually looked at it in perspective and I'm like, no, I, I actually think we just got a little bit used to having like one or 2% churn every month. And we thought that that was like normal. And as of right now, the last three months in a row, our churn has been 5%, which is still like in the ballpark of where a lot of agencies want to be is 5%. And this is like horrifically high for us. But the, you know, when you're used to one or 2% or 0% churn a month, but the, uh, um, the interesting thing is that we're losing, you know, more people every month than we've lost at any point in the last couple of years, but we're selling more new people in every month than we're losing. So mm. we're still actually, so even top though pacing we're top pacing yeah, it. like we, the, the average over the last 90 days has been, we make 12 sales a month, but we lose nine or 10. And so it's frustrating to lose nine or 10 when, when we got used to only losing typically two or three clients a month for years. Cause when you go from two or three to nine or 10, it's like this crisis of like, Oh my God, what are we doing wrong? And it's like, Oh no, the market is what it is. If you work in real estate and the market shrinks by 30%, frankly, if your business doesn't shrink by 30%, then you're doing something right. You know, it's almost like a financial advisor. I've used this analogy with our team of if you're managing people's assets, and someone has invested whatever $5 million with you and the market takes a dump and the market goes down 20%, right? Like a true market correction. Like if you as the financial advisor can keep your client's portfolio, just it even like, Hey, you didn't lose any money this year. We're not going to have a good year. We're not up 10%, but like your portfolio stayed the same while the market is down 20%. You're a genius, right? That's no different than being up. 20%. It's actually better than being up 20% in a flat year because the way math works, it takes more to earn back if you ever shrink from principle. Um, and so that's kind of what we're telling our clients. And that's what I told our team is that, hey, if the market's down 30% and we're essentially treading water right now, like we're having elevated churn, but we're oh, making man. more sales oh, every month. Yeah. Like we're just fine. We're going to be just fine. And so even in like the real estate recession that we're in right now, we're growing and platform has hired over half a dozen people just in the last 90 days. Like we're growing. Um, and so it's kind of, it's kind of exciting, like being in such a down market and we started a mortgage company in probably the single dumbest time to start a mortgage company in the history of the United States of America would be 2023. <laughs> like rates basically, tripled or quadrupled, uh, uh, depending on what graph you look at over the last year, mortgage, uh, mortgage, like origination volume just plummeted in the last year. Cause there's no longer a refi boom. Obviously no one's refining their mortgage when rates are at 7%. Um, just the dumbest time to start, uh, um, to start a mortgage company. I mean, even, even startup, I, I saw in Q1 of this year, startup activity is down 55% compared to Q1 of last year. So like funding for new companies is just off a cliff in the last year. Um, but that business is going really, really, really well uh, as well. So I'm almost grateful we're doing all this in a down economy because. When it comes back, you guys are just going to have explosive. Yeah. yeah. If, if your mindset and your operations and your company's systems and even how you train employees was forged in a time of like, 
zero margin for error, you know, where it's like, hey, we really have to have tight systems because the economy is working against us, not for us right now. If that shapes your company's operating principles, when the economy comes back and gets healthy and vibrant again, it's going to be like, you know, uh, swimming downstream. You know, it, it, it just becomes easy because right now we're swimming upstream and we're actually figuring out how to do it profitably and we're still making money. So when that when that tide turns, uh, it'll just make us all the more stronger. You, know, you think like Walt, Walt Disney launched his company in a recession and he talked about that for the rest of his life, that he learned how to build a business in the late 20s and 1930s, you know, when he was working on Snow White all those years in the middle of the Great Depression. And so when the economy kind of returned um, to somewhat of normalcy in the late 40s and obviously 50s and 60s, like it felt like business felt easy to him because he built the thing from scratch in the worst economy in the history of the United States, you know? So, so I kind of feel like we're, we're going through that right now, running a real estate agency when the market tanked 30% in terms of transaction volume. So that's been, no that's been I'd love to, I'd love to shift gears a little bit. Cause I think this is a great foundation kind of how you started, kind of where you're at today, some of the new things that you're up to, um, you know, if you could, so like you kind of walked around with the with the empty briefcase, you landed the realtor. I think for those of you that that are kind of in that space, what Tim did that's powerful is he went deep. Like he worked with that client, he got the results, he figured something out, and it led to massive growth within the niche. Um, if if you're up for it, could you talk a little bit about kind of what the what the package looks like, what you're providing to these realtors, um, and kind of what the what the service mix is? So. We charge eighteen twenty a month, so one thousand eight hundred twenty dollars a month, um, and then that's plus whatever ad spend the client wants to spend. Obviously, we're managing all that for them. We usually recommend a thousand dollars a month of ad spend, but some of our clients spend two thousand a month or more. We just say like, don't hire us for eighteen twenty a month to manage a four hundred dollar ads budget because that just doesn't make any sense for you. So that's what we do. Um, it's focusing on Facebook, I said, because I think that's where realtors should be spending their money right now. They're going to get the most bang for buck with Facebook ads. Um, we we write custom ads for our clients. So it's not just lead gen ads. Like I found most agencies, at least in our space, are just automating a bunch of lead gen funnels. And then it's just set it and forget it. And a bunch of leads come in. But agents don't want a high volume of leads. They'd way, way rather have fewer leads. But quality leads and actually have people like ideally calling them like they don't want homework they don't want to hire you and then have more work to do because they have to follow up with a bunch of leads so we've structured the marketing strategy in such a way where yeah they're going to get typically a couple hundred leads a month but a lot of what we do is write kind of interesting thoughtful retargeting ads um that will use a photo of the agent that maybe a favorite local pizzeria in town and we'll write a little essay about why they love this pizzeria and we'll actually do research about like are the owners involved in the community do you know the owners of this pizzeria from church or your kids play on the same baseball team or what's the story what's like some interesting tidbit so we're not just making generic posts like i love josh's pizzeria they have fresh ingredients and reasonable prices you know like your your ads shouldn't look or feel like chat gpt wrote them Right. Like do a little bit of independent research so it actually looks like a human wrote this ad. So our, our kind of tagline that we use with a lot of our clients is the best ads don't look like ads. So we really kind of specialize in this uh, this genre, I guess, of social media marketing where, yeah, we're going to 
run some, you know, lead gen campaigns like any other agency would to actually get names and emails and opt-ins and stuff for our realtors. Because at the end of the day, yeah, they need leads. But I don't think lead generation is synonymous with marketing. And too many agencies conflate those two terms as if they're the same thing. Lead generation is not synonymous with marketing. So most of what we do for clients is writing these really creative retargeting ads that almost on the surface have nothing to do with real estate. Um, we had one ad that we wrote a couple years ago about the history of the vanilla ice cream cone and how it's kind of a miracle that like we can enjoy a vanilla ice cream cone today because vanilla is this incredibly rare seed that you either have to get from Tahiti um, or a Madagascar. So you're either going to like the South Pacific or you're going to basically Africa to get this vanilla seed and then to have ice because ice cream involves ice, you know, until the invention of electricity and modern uh, refrigeration, you'd have had to like truck down ice from high altitudes in the mountains. You'd have had to be wealthy enough to send a convoy up into the mountains to bring back ice and enjoy ice cream, not to mention sugar to make this all work. You have to import typically from the Caribbean, right? Or South America. And so we totally take for granted something as simple as an ice cream cone. But what I did is I just did some research on like, what are all the raw inputs that go into enjoying something as, as casual and standard in the American lifestyle as a vanilla ice cream cone. And I wrote this essay about how like you're holding a miracle in your hand. Like you don't think about it, but like a king, like a literal king a hundred years ago, very likely couldn't have enjoyed a vanilla ice cream cone because they would have had to, like I said, import vanilla from the South Pacific, import ice from the mountains and um, sugar from across the world. And I mean, it just we take for granted our modern standard of living. So I wrote an ad about this and then we would tell our realtors, for example, hey, go grab a photo of you with a vanilla ice cream cone from your favorite local ice cream place in town. So like try not to go to Dairy Queen, right? Find an actual local ice cream place and just take a picture of you holding a vanilla ice cream cone. And then we wrote this essay around it and then we would tag the local ice cream place in the ad. And it's such an interesting like thoughtful, detailed ad that doesn't in any way look like an ad, right? That this ad would often go viral where it would get like hundreds of shares in the community because the ice cream place shares it. They think it's so cool that you wrote an essay about the history of vanilla ice cream. Their fans share it, kind of just takes on a, you know, a life of its own. And so if we can regularly come up with content ideas like that for our agents, we're kind of creating a category of one for ourselves as an agency. Cause they don't look to us as like, Oh, but they're not just a lead gen company. Cause if you're a realtor and all you want is leads, it's like, well, sign up with realtor.com or sign up with Zillow. They can get you a bunch of leads. But if you actually want to build a brand around those leads where like you're popping up on social media and you just have a really, really strong uh, brand, I guess, in your community, we've created a business model that allows us to build that form in a way that no other agency, can do. So this is why we only work with one agent per market is be, like, I know a lot of agencies don't do that, but I can't look an agent in the eye and say, Hey, I'm going to write an ad as like creative as this vanilla ice cream cone ad. And if you launch this ad and it gets a hundred shares and a hundred comments, and it's just kind of like going viral in a, in a local sense. Right. And then some other agent runs that exact same vanilla ice cream ad word for word verbatim. People in the community are going to see both of those. Right. And they're going to be like, uh, I saw the same post two days ago from another realtor. Uh, who copied who? Right. And so because of that focus, I guess, on creativity, um, 
we only work with one agent per market. So that's, that's like really central to, to our business model. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the main delivery. We, you know, set up obviously email autoresponders and all the things a normal agency would do when, when leads come in, we have weekly phone calls with all of our clients too, like one-on-one -on -one calls. So I have an account management team that does that and that's all Americans. So that's another thing that I know a lot of agencies don't do like our, our salary or our uh, payroll as a percentage of our monthly revenue is probably substantially higher than most agencies are. But I believe that our business model um, to execute on my vision for what, for what we're going to be like, that's just the reality. We have to have higher costs than, than a normal agency. Um, you know, we're not just hiring um, a bunch of VAs and having them be, you know, account managers for our clients because they're hopping on the phone every week with our clients and kind of doing marketing strategy calls for typically 20 or 30 minutes a week, which means each account manager can probably only work with 20 to 25 um, accounts. But if they're paying 18, 20 a month and they're having kind of a business strategy call, they don't want to talk to someone in some overseas country that doesn't know anything about real estate or, you know, what's going on. They want to talk to like, you know, an American, someone that they can um, uh, identify with. And that's that's not to say that I don't think it's impossible that as an agency that you could hire a really, really sharp person from Mexico or Colombia or the Philippines or whatever, right? Certainly there's people who probably speak great English, um, but if, if it's me and I'm a real estate agent and I find about this marketing agency called platform and I'm going to pay them, you know, 1800 bucks a month plus ad spend. So really you're looking at many cases, like $3,000 a month, like almost $40,000 a year to work with us. And then I find out that I'm doing weekly calls with, you know, some stranger in, you know, South America that doesn't really know anything about American real estate. I'd kind of be like, that's there's there's not not a lot of value that's coming to me on that weekly call right so in a sense our company is almost a hybrid between like coaching and marketing because we don't need to update them on how many leads they got every week that's not the reason we're doing a literal weekly call it's that those calls build the relationship between them and us and it's it's half coaching like hey here's how to follow up with the leads here's the content i want you to film for us this week so that we have new creative to launch new retargeting ads because we're launching new ads for our clients every week. It's not, it's not set it in, forget it. So it's kind of a classic creative agency um, in the sense that we're regularly coming up with new ad ideas. It's not like a Google pay-per-click driven model where you monitor the campaigns and it's kind of just like checking in on it and it's mostly autopilot. Like that's not the type of agency we're running um, for better or worse. Like, Sometimes I wish, man, it, life might be a lot more, more more simple if we didn't have so much creativity in our ads. We'd probably have way lower payroll because, you know, I know people in this in the 7FA group that, you know, have like 60% profit margin at scale or, you know, 80% profit margin when they're when they're early on and they haven't built a big team. That's like, well, we're nowhere. We're nowhere close to that. Like we, we try to stay around 25%. And I think with a couple of tweaks we've made, we should be able to consistently be at 30 to maybe 35%. Like our goal is once we hit 4 million in revenue next year, hopefully we're hovering somewhere around 30%, maybe 32% profit margin on that, um, on that 4 million. Um, so it's, it's, it's not as if we have such low margins that, you know, we're running 5% margins or something, but the way that we have the business model structure definitely has higher costs in some areas. than I think a lot of agencies do, but in, in, in my opinion, we make up for it in retention because I don't meet many agency owners who have years of data at one or 2% um, 
yeah. um, churn. So you kind of earn your money one of two ways, I guess. Love it. I think that's a great breakdown. I think it's it's counterintuitive kind of what you're doing with your service offering it, you know, kind of these these social posts that feel organic, but they're still being, you know, kind of promoted in the local market. Really interesting how that works. Um, and then you're not just like regurgitating social posts and organic posts on their behalf. I like how you're extracting you know, video content from the client and getting it uploaded. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanism behind that? Like, so that weekly call, they come up with a week of content potentially. How do you get the video file? How do you load it? Like, what, what's it look like, you know, in, in a minute or less on the back end of that? So this is probably evidence that I wasn't lying when I said that the company runs itself and I'm not super involved in day-to-day -day operations because I can't even tell you the details of like Amazing. how our account management team has built the systems. But I know that it basically uses what we do as a, a Google Drive and we just have shared folders with our clients where we have a weekly call and we might tell them like, hey, this week your marketing homework, to use the example of that vanilla ice cream ad. It's like, it's, it's, it's not even a video this week. Just take a photo mm. of yourself with a vanilla ice cream cone and then we'll show them an example of another client who's already done that ad so that here's what it should look like. Frame the photo like this. This is about how close up you should be, whatever. And then upload this photo to the, you know, the drive. And then the account manager gets that, kind of does a quality check on the content, whether it's a photo or video, you know, so sometimes they submit listing videos. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in that case, like the account manager is usually reviewing all the clips to make sure that, hey, are these good clips? Do we need to tell them to film it again? Once they've done a quick overview on like QC, then our account manager submits it to our ads team. And that's, at mo we, we call it the ads team. I found out a lot of agencies call it the fulfillment team. We call it the ads team. Um, right now we use Slack to communicate across the team and for project management and making sure like stuff gets done. We use Monday um, as kind of our project management system and it seems to work really, really well. Um, and uh, we we have a team overseas in the Philippines now that's up to 20 people, I think, that's on the ads team. We have Americans who proof everything. Um, so anytime an ad's about to get launched, whether it's a video on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, it's often a Filipino doing the initial video editing or the initial launch of that ad. But then in America, we have a system where an American always has to proof it before it goes live because we want to make sure that there's no language communication barriers where, you know, um, something was spelled incorrectly or anything like that. But we actually do the same system with Americans. So even if an American edited the video is launching the ad, another American still has to proof it. So it's not just because we had people in the Philippines. We actually did that before we ever had um, a, a, a team overseas. But um, uh, that's, that's the process for how, for how ads get launched. Usually we aim for like a 48 hour turnaround of when a client submits content to us to when an ad gets launched. Um, obviously the team overseas is on like a 12 hour time difference. So that makes it interesting to, there's only a couple hours of every day where we can really like communicate with them while, when we're both awake, you know, but that's how it works on the, on the back end. Um, you know, we pay most of our team in the Philippines six to $8 an hour. Um, a couple of them, you know, can make even more than that, but we, we get really quality people. Um, and I found that some agencies pay less than that and they've had negative experiences with overseas talent. I'm like, well, pay more, that's, right? that's like, that's what you get when you pay $4 or $5 an hour. Cause at least in the Philippines, I can't speak authoritatively on every other country, but approximately depending on the city, the cost of living of where the specific person lives, it's going to be about a four X multiple 
on what you pay them is like the American equivalent for their standard of living. So if we pay someone $7 an hour, we're getting someone who has the approximate skill level of what in the US you'd be getting for a $28 an hour employee. Mm. And at $28 an hour, like an, an, an easy trick to kind of figure out what that translates to an annual salary, because I know most people think in terms of annual salary, not necessarily hourly wage, is assuming you're talking about a 50 week year at 40 hours a week, it's 2000 hours in the standard work year. So it means you can basically just multiply by two and add some zeros. So if you're paying someone $30 an hour, multiply 30 by two, it's 60. $30 an hour is the equivalent of $60,000 a year. Like that's putting it in annualized terms. And so um, if you're hiring, again, a Filipino employee for $7 an hour, they're earning really the equivalent of like $28 an hour. And so if you put that in annualized terms, you're paying that employee just shy of 60 grand a year. So you're getting like a smart person, right? If you pay someone $8 an hour, then that's almost a $70,000 a year, you know, employee. And so I think a, a lot of agencies have had negative experiences, maybe hiring people overseas in whatever country, because someone told them, Hey, you can get pay the bottom, pay the bottom, right? Yeah, There's always right. a benefit in kind of paying a premium yes. for the right people. Yeah, there's absolutely an arbitrage there where uh, if if you can get if you can technically hire someone for five dollars an hour and someone who can, I guess, technically do the job, it's like, well, I guess that's one way of doing it. But I'd rather keep our major costs down and pay people seven or eight dollars an hour, even if they were willing to work for five. So this is a point I'm making like even if they would have said yes to a five or $6 an hour job, I want to pay them eventually seven or $8 an hour because our company is not going to miss the couple extra hundred dollars a month that costs us. You know, if they're working full time for us, 40 to 50 hours a week, it's literally a couple hundred dollars a month for us. But for them, that's the difference between being like lower working class versus like middle upper class is paying $8 an hour versus five. Right. And so, We've been working with the team in the Philippines now for, I think, coming up on three years. And maybe I can fact check this with my wife because she actually manages the entire team in the Philippines. But like, to my knowledge, we now have um, almost 20 people in the Philippines. We've never had someone quit in three years. Nice. And, yeah, I, and I, that, that's a lot to do with your retention of your of your your team and your clients, right? If you retain the team, there's consistency, you know, there, there's, it's going to impact your, your retention on the other side as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just a quality over quantity play, right? Like you could either make money as a company by trying to keep your expenses as low as possible and cutting corners on everything that you can, or you can make reasonable decisions. Like I'm not saying we, we blow money on random things that make no sense, but like, make reasonable decisions on costs and then focus your energy, like your actual mental energy, which is scarce on bringing in more revenue and doing more creative things. Cause I think there's a higher upside to that. Like you can only cut down to a certain level, but the amount that you can grow your company or increase your margin is essentially, um, you know, infinite. I mean, like we raised our price last year by like a hundred something dollars a month and basically overnight increased our, you know, uh, net profit every month by over $20,000 a month, just because we ran the numbers and we're like, Hey, we think we can raise prices here by a hundred dollars a month. And that gave us money to give raises to a bunch of employees. Like I didn't, I didn't view that money when that extra, you know, net income came in as, Oh, sweet. Tim makes an extra $20,000 a month. You know, 
I, even before we did it, I viewed it as like this money, almost all of this is already going to go to just giving key employees raises. So even our American um, account managers, like three, four years ago, the average we were paying them was 45 to 50,000. And we had some people who were like rock stars that were making 55 to 60,000. And now the average account manager of platform makes 60,000. And the people that we think are elite make like 75,000 plus full benefits, health insurance, all that. So really their total comp is in the eighties. And again, I, I think this is normal. It makes perfect sense to me, but I've found that most agencies are not paying their account managers anywhere near $80,000 a year. Like most of them are paying 50, 50, 55. But I think that same arbitrage that we were talking about in the Philippines is true of here in the United States. You get an entirely different uh, quality of candidate and talent that becomes accessible if you're willing to pay $75,000 a year for someone than you get if you're like, hey, can we get lucky and hire someone who's a diamond in the rough for $50,000 a year? Um, and maybe they'll grow into being awesome. But like, you know, you kind of get what you pay for in a certain sense. Exceptions, there's always exceptions, but exceptions prove the rule. So we've kind of built our agency with the model of like, let's pay talent what they're worth so that they don't want to leave and they actually view platform as a legitimate career and they're going to stay with us long term. And we have people on our team who have graduate degrees, like master's degrees and in 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 the US and they're working with us and they view platform as a legitimate career. So that's what's given me the confidence to kind of bring this full circle that because our agency is stable and resilient and we have a team that we totally trust and believe in um, and they feel like they have career growth here where they can get promoted and get pay raises that like I have mental energy to like, hey, let's start a nationwide mortgage company. <laughs> you right. know, most agency owners wouldn't have the bandwidth to go start a totally separate side business like that because they're just all in head down 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week on their, um, on their agency. So again, I'm not saying that our way of doing it is right because I certainly know agency owners, even in the seven FA mastermind that we're in, um, there's agency owners in there that are making substantially more money than I am. Right. But it's just a different way of setting up the business. So I guess I say that because maybe there's a couple people listening to this that, view business the way that I do. I just want you to know that you're not alone. That is a way you can set up your business. There's really no right or wrong. It's whatever feels right and works uh, works for you. I think that's a really powerful insight. Just the idea that, you know, it seems obvious, but if you pay people more, you're going to potentially get better quality. You're going to get better retention and you're going to get better peace of mind that you've got good quality people and they're more likely to stick around, right? And not hop to that next job, which has massive ramifications on your on your growth. I want to get into two things because we're getting, you know, kind of like towards the end of our time here. Um, I want to get in a little bit on operations and scale because you've done a great job kind of growing the company and not having to do it all yourself. And I want to talk a little bit about retention and some cool things you guys are doing to maintain that massive retention rate that you have. Uh, there's a specific question here for Brady Sticker. So Brady, thanks for being on here. And he says he wants to hear a little bit more about the CMO that you recently brought on um, and kind of how you found that person and what that looked like in your, in your business. Because I think a lot of us that are kind of at that multiple seven figure mark, you know, we're really busy on maybe the sales or the marketing side of the business. Um, and that's one of the key things. If you can figure out how to let go, can recreate that freedom to work on big projects like your mortgage company or whatever passion plays you have in place. Yeah. So specifically how we found the CMO is it was, uh, um, I guess a friend of mine that I'd kind of met initially via social media, he was running an agency 
um, in Minneapolis, and they actually had a brick and mortar location in the Twin Cities. Um, they were a generalist agency, just a traditional ad agency that took on clients anywhere from e-commerce to law firms they had as clients to um, they managed some political campaigns and did fundraising for candidates. I mean, uh, they would take on any any type of work, whether it was like web dev, social media marketing, you know, anything like that. They had, um, I think, a dozen employees. And it was one of those where it was just like you work super, super hard to get to one million or one and a half million in revenue because it's just like white knuckle every month, like bringing in new sales to replace the people quitting and, you know, um, and I, 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 I had a lot of respect. His name is Max. I'm how Max built this agency because I don't know if in that business model, if I would have ever been able to hit a million dollars a year. It's really hard to scale an agency if you don't specialize in a specific niche. Um, because if you do a great job for a law firm, like I know Max's agency um, uh, had, a, had a law firm and they were, I, I forget what they're, you know, they were charging them whatever, four or $5,000 a month was their retainer plus whatever ad spend. And they were doing a great job for them. It's like, well, the law firm isn't going to refer them to other law firms that they know because they don't want their competition <laughs> to hire Max's agency, you know. Um, and so there's there's just a lot of businesses where if you're uh, if you're a generalist agency, like you don't even necessarily benefit from the referrals that naturally come from doing good work. Um, if every new client you have to start from zero and learn the institutional knowledge of that industry, so. Um, I feel like Max was trapped and Max, again, Max is the guy who eventually became our CMO. Max was trapped inside of a bad business model. Like he was really brilliant. He was really smart. He was great at sales and, you know, building the marketing campaigns and the strategy, but his talent was being held hostage inside of a business model that didn't allow him to maximize the true value that he was bringing. So he was working super hard and struggling to even break like, six figures consistently in take-home pay um even though i thought he was a brilliant uh brilliant marketer it's just like the the business model he's in wasn't allowing him to pay himself what what he was actually worth and so i just approached him and said hey we have some big plans at platform in the future we want to grow in all these different directions with our traditional marketing agency and by the way we're starting this mortgage company next year that the goal is to make that like a you know hundred million dollar plus company kind of our our like 10 year vision for John Galt mortgage. That's our uh, mortgage company, John Galt mortgages. We want a Super Bowl ad within 10 years. So that's kind of like the big picture vision of where we're going. We don't want some small little regional mortgage company. Like we want it to be a national household name within the next decade. So I pitched him on our vision and I shared with him, you know, what we could pay him. And so, you know, Max is our CMO. So it's, you know, it's not a $40,000 a year job. Like his total comp is like a six figure six-figure compensation package and then he also now has equity in the company it was a mixture of equity that came as kind of like a signing bonus where it was you know given to him i guess and he bought in some equity from the rest of the partners and so it was a combination of like you know pay, being willing to pay a six-figure salary and him having equity in the company because he flat out told me that you know um i would have never come and joined you guys if it was just a nice salary because I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I want to chart my own course and I want to believe that I'm like the captain of my destiny. Right. Like I wouldn't, own, like I wouldn't want to work for someone if I didn't own part of that company. Like I wouldn't want to be 
you know, be on the team if I wasn't actually a partner, like legally a partner in the business. And so um, it was a, it was kind of a no duh decision to me because I genuinely think Max is smarter than me at marketing. Like Max knows more of the technical side of things of setting up Google campaigns or Facebook or troubleshooting this or that than I do. I think of myself as a big picture idea guy and a copywriter and Max is much more attuned to, I guess, just the finer granular side of setting up marketing campaigns. So I thought it was such a win-win to bring him in, um, kind of manage all the marketing strategy at a high level um, and put us in a position where we can truly, uh, truly scale. So like, did that mean our profit took a hit this last year? Like, yeah, because now we have, a, you know, another person on the payroll who's, you know, their total compensation is like six figures. And, you know, um, so yeah, like it means our profits are lower in the short term, but you have to be willing to make those investments if you want to have more profit over the long term, because I think max unlocks levels of growth that otherwise we would not been able to hit if we were held hostage by just my time as the CEO being a limiting, limiting factor. So, yeah. So good. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great explanation of kind of how you went about it and kind of how you made it work. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a different way of thinking, but you know, if you can give some equity at the top of the business, you can get true bought in entrepreneurs that will run with the ball and not just be like, okay, this is my job and I'm going to work nine to five. Uh, so I think it's really interesting how you've structured these, um, you know, limited partners that are able to come into your business and really um, be bought into what you're doing and help accomplish the big picture uh, vision. As it relates to operations and scale. So, you know, you went from one client to 200 plus. Now you've got, you know, a multiple seven figure business and it's continuing to grow. You said you read the E-Myth. Um, like, talk to me a little bit about like how you structured SOPs, um, operations management, like, how did you pull that off in your business? And like, what are some tactics for the agencies that are, are looking to make sure that they systematize their business in the same way? So much of it, I have to give credit to my wife, Bella, because she built so much of like the trainings and systems and processes for making our company efficient to where there actually was profit left over, you know, every month. Um, she actually keeps an annual tally of like, we, you know, we used to only have Americans on our ads team. So we were paying Americans, you know, like, $25 an hour to $30 an hour to like do basic things like splicing videos that come in and, you know, launching ads. And at the current size we're at, had we never moved to using at least partial overseas talent on our ads fulfillment team, like currently this year, it accounts for about $25,000 a month in net savings. So $300,000 a year of net profit is just because of that one decision and the systems that she's built for handling, uh, handling fulfillment. So I have to, honestly have to give her a lot of the credit um, on that. I think one of the most important things that we've done that again, I've seen most agencies don't, don't, don't do this is we have a weekly rhythm of calls with our clients. So we're just in touch with them substantially more than most agencies are. Like most agencies have kind of a, I've found the standard is typically a monthly check-in and sometimes it's over Zoom, Loom, whatever. Um, and you're kind of just going over the numbers. We do a weekly call. So like assuming that, you know, you're off for two weeks of vacation a year or whatever, like that means every year we're talking to our clients 50 times on the phone. And so if a client has stayed with us for four years, we've had 200 phone conversations with them. Like we get to know them better than they probably know their friends and family. And so the, the, that, that depth of a relationship, I think is what keeps our churn so low. 
Hmm. is they truly view us as business partners. Like they don't view us as like their Facebook ads company. They view us as like a business partner who just happens to also be managing their marketing, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the key to our operations. Um, it's not that we have some genius tech stack of uh, of an automation we set up with Slack or Monday or ChatGPT or you know anything like that. It's that all that stuff is kind of obvious. Like when you're running an agency, you'll just figure out the systems and processes for how all that should go. But I think that's probably the key is that we invest more in like the amount of time we spend with clients is just such greater than other agencies. We have an annual mastermind we do every year that probably 80, 90% of clients attend it. We don't charge anything for it. You just show up. I mean, last year we had almost 200 people there and they spend two full days with us in person in Florida. Um, and we bring in some guest speakers. I give a keynote, you know, and it's just kind of a, um, an, an in-person kind of like family reunion experience where all of our clients get to meet each other, um, hang out. Again, it's in-person. It's not a big Zoom online webinar. It's an in-person event. Um, that's a huge driver, I think, of the sense of community that we've cultivated. We have a private Facebook group where people can share best practices. Um, we do things randomly, like we sponsored a rodeo the last couple of years, like a, a, a pro rodeo in South Dakota. Um, that's kind of like a camping excursion where we encourage people, hey, join us in June. Like Platform is sponsoring a pro rodeo. Bring your RV, tents, whatever, and we're just going to hang out. There's no real business purpose. It's not like we have speakers or we're formally masterminding together just come and hang out with us like i'll be there like what other marketing company can you say you get to hang out and go camping with the ceo and just roast marshmallows together and watch a rodeo at night um we even sponsored a pro uh bronc rider um uh uh tanner oss he's like a top 10 um bareback bronc rider in the country so he's like legit it's not some random guy i met who you know is just a does county fairs or something like he's like a top 10 in the country bronc rider and uh he's gone to the uh nfr which is in a in the rodeo world the nfr is like the finals it's called the national finals rodeo it's in las vegas every year and that's where like the best in the country go to see who's like the world champion he's qualified for nfr i think like seven or eight times now um like the last four years in a row he's been there so like He's riding this year with like a platform sponsorship where he wears our logo on his uniform. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll use our Facebook page and our, our Facebook group of clients, like share updates on how Tanner is doing. Like, Hey, here was his score at the rodeo last week and has nothing to do with real estate, right? At all. There's not even an indirect tie in, but it shows our clients that like, they're a part of a community that's different from anything else out there. Like, Zillow isn't sponsoring rodeos or other marketing companies in the industry. Like they don't sponsor pro rodeo cowboys. They don't have camping excursions where you can go hang out and just, you know, eat pizza or drink beer or roast marshmallows with like the team that handles your marketing, you know, but we do that because we actually want to get to know, uh, you know, clients. Um, and like a lot of them have actually become friends as cheesy as that sounds like, I mean, when, when they've worked with us for five years or seven years or whatever, they kind of become friends, you know, it's like much deeper than a typical agency client relationship. And that's what we're going for. Like, we're never going to be the biggest agency because we have this model of one client per market. Right. And we define that pretty generously. So even like a city like Knoxville, Tennessee, um, like we have one client who gets the greater Knoxville area. It's not like one, like we don't define a market as like one zip code or something. It's like, no, mm. your city. Right. 
And so I think we'll probably max out around 250, maybe 275 clients total. Cause at a certain point, there's just not enough cities left in available, yeah. to where we can have a client, but I would be thrilled with that. That would, to me, would be a huge success. So like, I'd rather be the best marketing agency in the industry than the, than the biggest. Cause I know the, the, the results we get for our clients, like this is also why our, our retention is so good is that we often like double the business of our clients. Like they're not hiring us because they want to grow by 10% or something, but we very often, they were maybe making a hundred thousand before platform. And after working with us for a year, they're at 200,000 or 250,000, or maybe they were at 200,000 before they signed up and we get them to 400,000 in income. And so the marketing that we do actually works, you know, and that's the ultimate marketing strategy. Love it. So like two key takeaways on that for me, uh, on the operations side of things, tech stack, um, you know, systems, procedures, a lot of it, like as the founder, as the CEO, as the visionary, like you've got the right people in place, your wife and other team members that can take the ball and run with it. I think a lot of times we're, you know, as the owner of the business, the visionary, we're very quick start, low follow through. We're not great with the details and don't feel like you have to be great with the details. Tim has said it a couple of times, like, I'm not totally sure how that works. I got a team that knows exactly how that works and sets like, that up. I, okay. I would actually not be able if, if, uh, cause we have really generous PTO policies. We actually let our employees have 40 days a year of paid time off. And we uh, used to do unlimited, but what I kind of found was like unlimited creates this passive aggressive vibe where like no one actually knows how much time you can take off before we start. Like the boundary. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, it's unlimited, but like, I, you know, can I take off a week every month? It's like, well, then it's not really unlimited if you can't do that and not have negative consequences, right? So we kind of sat down as a leadership team and devised, like, what is the maximum amount someone could take off and like no negative consequences whatsoever? And we came up with 40 days of PTO and we split it up 10 days per quarter. So you can't just take off the last 40 days of the year, but it's 10 days per quarter. So every three months, you can take two full weeks off because obviously two weeks is 10, 10 working days. And so we encourage people to take that off because we don't want our employees to get, you know, burnt out. Um, and as we as we like look at uh, the the PTO policy as an example, that means we have to have higher than normal staffing levels because at any given time, we usually have several people that are off that week using that PTO policy. Hmm. Um, but I actually can't step in and do an account manager's job because honestly, I don't even know all the workflows they use on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I would not be able to hop in and like sub in for an account manager for a week, nor would I be able to do it on the ads team because I'm not even trained in on all the random software they're uh, using. And I think that's the true measure of, are you actually the CEO of your business or are you- um, An employee, a worker. You know, you know. Exactly. So, um, and I don't know how to do all those things. I just saw there was a question in the comments. Does that apply for overseas workers as well? Like, yes, we give our people overseas paid time, uh, paid time off. And we also pay them bonuses if they do a great job on, you know, something we'll pay them bonuses. We pay like a 13 month bonus in the Philippines where you pay them an extra month salary at the end of every year. Um, it's a, like a very good job working at platform. We've actually sourced probably half the team we have in the Philippines is just an estimate off the top of my head are referrals from people who they know in their personal lives of like, you've got to get a job at this platform company. It's like a great place to work and good pay. And, um, and so we don't have to waste a bunch of money on 
outside talent firms because people like enthusiastically refer their their uh, you know friends or family to us if they're you know if they're qualified, obviously. That's awesome. Yeah, you've created a great culture to work, which creates a great experience for the clients, which is driving growth, is also driving retention. Um, so on the upside, don't feel like you have to know it all. Really, most of the multiple seven-figure agencies that I deal with, they couldn't answer the questions on operations because they removed themselves. One of the first things you should do is remove yourself from operations and get people that can really make sure the trains run on schedule and that the operations are moving forward. On the retention side, you've mentioned them multiple times, so you know, there's 99, 98% monthly retention kind of across the organization over the years. Uh, I think weekly check-ins is a big part of that. Driving great results is a big part of that. Uh, and the big idea that a lot of you guys could do that most of you don't is creating community across the client base. So if you've got 50 clients, 70 clients, 200 clients like Tim, put together a Facebook group where it's not just you sharing what you're doing, but where they can kind of mastermind with each other. Um, and then the live event experience that you've got, I think that absolutely drives better relationships, better attention is part of the reason you guys not only are retaining at the level that you are, but you're also getting as many referrals as you do. Yeah, I think the the one word answer to what is like, what's the secret sauce of um, of, a, of a retention and all these positive vibes you have in the company, it's community. Super cliche, totally aware that that's just a stereotypical answer to say, oh, we invest in community, right? But like, how else do you rationalize why we would spend $10,000 to sponsor a pro rodeo cowboy that has nothing to do with real estate, right? Or that we spend probably upwards of $10,000, $20,000 sponsoring the rodeo every year that we sponsor. It's just a camping excursion for our team and any clients who want to join us. But the last time we sponsored the rodeo, we had three clients' families who drove up all the way from Texas to South Dakota, which is like a 12-hour drive with RVs, brought their kids, their wives, their entire families. We had a client who drove all the way over, rented an RV with their entire family. Again, like, you know, husband, wife, kids, everything from Ohio to Columbus, Ohio to South Dakota. Uh, one guy drove all the way from Kentucky to join us for this rodeo in South Dakota. Um, I'm forgetting we had, where we had people come from. I mean, like we, we had one who came all the way from Arizona to South Dakota for this rodeo. It's just, hey, come out with us and hang out. And that has nothing to do with marketing, right? But like you can't really rationalize an investment in a relationship in that sense of community with traditional financial metrics because it's like, well, how do you rationalize the ROI of your marriage? It's like, I don't know, but it's definitely a net positive good in my life, you know? So I see all these, you know, the the, the mastermind we hosted last year cost us $50,000 to put on because we're, you know, buying meals for 200 people, the hotel AV paying some speakers fees of the speakers we paid it, you know, to, to bring in, like, we're not paying speakers fees for everyone, but some people demand that you're going to pay them $2,000 or $5,000 to speak or whatever. Cause we truly think of this event as like, if we were charging $500 a ticket, what would the quality of the event have to be? Well, let's do that and then make it free. Right? So we view the event as like an annual $50,000 investment in retention and community because getting to meet clients in person, like if, if you were in our Facebook group every year when we announced the mastermind, cause we're about to do it this, this week, actually in our Facebook group for the mastermind at the end of 2023, you'll see all the veteran clients just immediately light up the comments in this Facebook group of like, you have to go. If anyone's reading this and you're a first year platform client, I'm just telling you make time to attend the mastermind because 
it's the most important event you'll ever attend. It's better than any real estate conference you've ever been to. And like, we're not saying this, our clients are saying this about the event. Like they'll say, I've been to Tom Ferry events. I've been to the national realtor conference. I've been to the annual Remax convention, or I've been to this event or that event. And the platform marketing mastermind blows it away. Um, and, uh, like I still have friends in the marketing industry that'll like come and give a talk. Like, you know, I have some friends who will speak at our event and they're like, dude, like this event is more valuable than events I've paid a thousand dollars to attend. Like the actual quality of the content you have here is like elite and it's free. Like we don't charge them. Now, might we start charging a hundred bucks in the future? Like, yeah, we've talked about that because it would help defray the cost of like, you know, when hotels charge you a hundred dollars a gallon for coffee or a catered lunch is $65 a person type thing. Right. Like, like that gets really expensive. So we're considering maybe next year we might charge $99 a person, and we're still losing substantial amounts of money on the event. Like it's not a profit center when you, you know, charge 99 bucks a person. I mean, Josh, you obviously put on events, you know how expensive they are. But uh, I view it as an investment in the community because if people feel like they know each other and it becomes like a tribe of sorts, where even with referrals, we see like platform clients, like a realtor who works with us in Tucson and is the platform agent in Tucson might have someone they're selling their house in tucson because they're moving to knoxville and then we'll see a post in our facebook group hey who's our client in knoxville again who's the platform agent in knoxville and the reason they're asking is they want to give a referral to that person like they don't give a crap what brokerage the knoxville agent is with like they don't care if they're with kw or remax or exp or coldwell banker or all the various real estate brokerages they don't care who they're with because they know that if you're in the platform i mean our clients even use this phrase platform for platform family. That's super cheesy, right? I didn't come up with that. Like our clients did, they started calling it the platform and we kind of just went along with it. Um, they want to work with other agents that are in the platform. They've even started organizing like impromptu meetups, like little mini masterminds around the country where all the Ohio platform agents get together um, and do a little weekend mastermind. It's not an official platform sanctioned event, but they all get together because they become friends. And so, uh, it's almost as if we started a mastermind group that technically is a marketing agency. Like you're, you're hiring us and you're paying the money because we manage your marketing. But what you're really getting is an elite mastermind group of realtors across the country that are implementing the same marketing strategy. And so it, it's, it's a really interesting business model that creates a category of one because it happens all the time where someone contacts us and they're like, uh, hey, I'm in McKinney, Texas. I'm in Collin County, Texas, you know, suburb of Dallas. Can I sign up for platform? And I'm like, hey, so sorry. No, we have a client there. Our client's name is Stephen Leslie Rummy. They've been with us for eight years. They're never going to quit. Um, so no, that market's not available. And they're like, okay, well, can you refer me to some other company that does the same thing as you? And that's a, that's a reasonable question to ask, right? Because almost any other industry, like there are competitors, right? And I have no problem referring someone to a competitor. Like, Technically, in our industry, there's Wylo, Bow Curator, Bloomtown, Sync. I mean, there's all sorts of marketing marketing companies for realtors. But honestly, like I'm not just saying this. Honestly, there is not a single company out there that does things the way that we do for realtors. So if you're looking for a company that's actually an alternative to platform, like there, there is not one. And it, it's just a much more interesting way of doing business for me to know that I don't actually have competition because we created such a unique business model. That I don't have to worry about what our competitors 
are doing or keeping up with the features they're adding or what new marketing services are they providing? Cause like, we're honestly not in competition with them. We've created such a unique business model that we do our own thing. And as long as the results are there, um, I just think it's a much more interesting way of doing, of uh, doing business, like creating that category of one. Love it. Great stuff, Tim. Lots of great insights here on how you grew the business, how you serve your clients, how you're, you know, improving retention and having such great retention that you have kind of some ideas on how you've structured your team and um, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your abundance mentality coming on here and kind of sharing what's worked for you. Um, guys, if you have follow-up questions, be sure to put them into the Facebook group. Um, you know, Tim, Tim is in the, the member community. He can help out and answer some questions. Tim, if they wanted to connect with you, any other ways to, to connect with you? Yeah, um, I'll just share my, uh, my personal email. It's just tim at platform.marketing. Um, so there's no, there's no.com. It's just Tim at platform.marketing. So good guys. Thanks for listening. If you got value, hit the one comment here. Um, be sure to, to tag Tim and thank him for sharing and all of the great insights. Tim kind of, as we wrap up, if you had one additional piece of wisdom for the listener, the agency that's trying to get to the next level, um, what would that be kind of in, in closing today? Focus on getting actual client results. Like, any problem that you are dealing with in your business in your agency is usually downstream it's derivative of the fact that you're not getting enough client results because even if when inevitably you screw up on something like there's a an error on an ad or a client didn't get good results for a month or two if that's happening in the context of the other 99 percent of the time that they've worked with you, the results have just been clear. Like you doubled my business or you tripled my business or like, you know, like every dollar I'm paying your company, I'm getting back five in return or 10 in return type thing. If you just focus on that, everything else is just details because most agencies are trying to optimize and fix all the symptoms of the fact that they don't actually generate amazing client results. They maybe generate okay client results or pretty good client results but if the results aren't there you're going to spend your time trying to fix all the symptoms of that and like that's always the real problem and thus the solution so it's all about getting clients results um where they're just thrilled in you know thrilled in working with you because all the stuff i talked about in this podcast josh of like investing in community and paying our employees well and sponsoring rodeos and all the random unique things we do like None of that would matter outside the context of us working with realtors and very often being able to increase their business by 50% or 80% or 140% or, you know, um, none of that matters if the results aren't there. If the results are there, then there's all sorts of cool things that you can do um, to put icing on the cake, but like focus on results because nothing else matters. So good. So good, guys. Type your takeaways in the comments. Be sure to thank Tim. Tune in for a future episode of the Seven Figure Agency podcast. And again, Tim, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time.